church. Is it well with your soul this morning? Regardless of what we see or have experienced even this morning, even on the way to church, even in the parking lot, our eyes remain fixed on him. Well, if I had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Trace. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here with us on this beautiful Lord's Day. Southern California, the last day of February, and we get to be outside, and we're grateful for that. If you haven't been with us uh, recently, we've been going through the gospel according to John, and we're going to continue there this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you've got a Bible app, you've got some source of scripture in front of you, go ahead and flip over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I don't know about you, but this has been a really great endeavor for, for my soul as we've been walking through John. Something that many of you have read multiple times in your life, certainly, but uh, just the complexity, the depth of Scripture, you go back over it, you're like, wow, how did I not see that before? Or how does that impact my decisions today? And so we are in John chapter 43, uh, 43 chapter 4, verse 43. Uh, we just spent last week talking about the Samaritan woman. Uh, Mike walked us through that. And so we're going to pick back up today. I'm going to start off by reading the section of the scripture. Those I should have been flipping to the scripture as I asked you to do that. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. You just follow along with me if you've gotten there. That's great. Otherwise, you can catch up with us. John 4, 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them, The hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Lord, we pause this moment. Grateful and appreciative for your word that guides and instructs. It brings new life and hope. And Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning. Lord, let your word be fixated in our hearts and our minds your word move us, compel us, push us to action this morning. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Alright, so we're beginning this morning with a bit of a transition from the last scene. That was the Samaritan woman at the well. That was, of course, in Samaria. Uh, and we transition to this familiar location, uh, Cana. So why is this place Cana familiar to us? 
That was the first sign, right? The water to wine. We just read that, but I just want to make sure you're paying attention. He performed his first miracle there in Cana. But I wonder if anything else stood out in those couple of transitionary verses of 43 to 45. Sometimes we read through these things and just kind of move past it and like, okay, that's cool. We're moving scenes. Uh, But I think two things stand out. One is this sort of parenthetical statement, that that fancy word for the words that are in between parentheses. (laughs) This parenthetical statement that Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. We read that in verse 44. So this is not in red in my Bible, so it's not something that he said right then, but it was a reference to something he must have said before, and now it's about to make sense. The meaning is going to become clear. It has everything to do with what just happened in Samaria. Now, was Samaria Jesus' hometown? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, his own disciples were questioning, like, why are you here? Why are you even talking to these people? was not his hometown. But he was identified as a prophet. Remember the woman at the well? This man has told me all that ever did. Surely you must be a prophet. And then later, Jesus is going to become the object of a lot of people's faith. If you go back just a few verses, you look at verse 39, it says that many Samaritans from that town believed. Then if you look at verse 41, it says that many believed because of his word. Now church, this can be lost easily on us if we don't pay attention to what's coming next. Because this ties in beautifully for what is going to happen. Many believed because of his word. Keep that right there, just tuck it away for a minute. But he's received in Samaria on the basis of his word and who he is as a savior of the world. Now, the second point of interest, maybe not as obvious, the people of Galilee, it says that they welcomed him, right? We just read that. They welcomed him in. But why were they so ready to receive Jesus? What were they so eager about? Look at the second half of verse 45. Look down at verse 45. I know it's windy. Kind of hard to keep things in in order. The second half of verse 45, we see why they were eager to have welcome Jesus. He did something cool, man, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. In other words, they were excited about Jesus because of all the miraculous things he had done. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus had done many signs and wonders at this point. John has only recorded two in his gospel account, but he had done many other things. So this sets up the message for today, and that is simply this. True faith requires true understanding. True faith requires true understanding. You see, saving faith is always found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not faith in some sort of distant, ambiguous idea of God. Faith is not found in what he's capable of. It's not found in what he's done for other people. Faith is not even about our own faith, having faith in our faith. Faith is only as significant as its object. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it in the Christian world. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. His life, death, and resurrection. That's what we're putting our faith in. So, my friends, if true faith requires true understanding, we got to look at our text this morning and kind of ask some questions. we got to know what he's talking about. What kind of faith is it that God responds to? This story is all about faith. So we have this man that we get introduced. How is he referred to? What is he? 
He's an official. Some other translations add another word. He's a royal official. Sounds pretty significant, right? We know almost certainly from context and other translations that this is a royal servant of King Herod Antipas. He was an important man, significant in his stature in the community. Now we see some interesting behavior from this man, don't we? He travels from Capernaum to Galilee. Anybody in the room know how long that is? About 25 miles. 25 miles and about 1,500 feet in elevation change. It's, it's not a quick little jaunt across the street. He comes. This royal official makes this arduous task to come see this insignificant carpenter. Not only that, but when he arrives, the text tells us he begs Jesus to help him in desperation. Now, the ESV just says he asks for help. But some of your other translations, and the word I think is better rendered, begs or implores. Now, that's quite an image, isn't it? This royal official, exhausted and desperate, falls at the feet of Jesus and begs for help as if Jesus is the only one that can actually help him. The the symbolism here is quite significant. This earthly royal official becomes a humble servant of the true royal official, King Jesus. This is a reversal that happens. In fact, for the rest of the chapter, this man is not referred to again as a royal official. His identity is changing. So what's this man so frantic about? His son, what's going on with his son? He's ill, like to the point of death. He's certainly going to die. And I think any parent in the room can relate to the idea of a sick child, right? And any person with a pulse can sympathize with the fact that there's some concern for this sick child. Now, some of you might be familiar enough with the other gospel accounts where you're thinking that this story sounds familiar. I've heard this before. You might be thinking of the centurion and the servant from Matthew 8 and Luke 7. If you want, you can go read Luke 7 and Matthew 8 and hear a similar story, but this is different altogether. But you got to love Jesus' response in verse 48 because it cuts to the heart of the matter. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the you, the you in this context is plural. We don't get that from our English translation, but Jesus is not only talking to this man, but he's talking to everybody, the whole entire group. You see, these people, as we briefly discussed in our transition verses leading into the story, are excited about Jesus because of what he can do, not because of who he is. Very important distinction. These people are from his hometown, and they show him no honor for who he truly was. They, they were guilty of using Jesus for their own purposes. They just wanted something from him. What can you do for me? How can you make my earthly life better? They had no faith in the person and work of Jesus, as the Samaritans did. So you see how this is tying in. The people not from his hometown who had nothing to do with him took him at his word and had faith and made his people who are his, his brethren, so to speak, didn't see him. Now, Jesus isn't being dismissive here of signs and wonders. He's not saying, like, no, don't worry about that. As one commentator writes, the criticism from Jesus is not about the signs altogether, what is about to happen is the second sign that John records. Rather, Jesus is criticizing belief that is founded in the witness itself and not on 
the object of the witness, as well as belief that stems from wrong motives. So Jesus is concerned for this people. He has a heart for them. He wants them to gain an understanding of true faith, knowing that true faith requires true understanding. So you see, this is all about faith. And every one of us exercises a measure of faith every day, right? When you got in your car this morning, you turned the key. You had some faith that it was going to start. Otherwise, you wouldn't turn the key. What about when you go to, say, a new doctor? You're exercising some measure of faith. You invite your friend over to help you cut your hair. There's a measure of faith that you're extending, right? Unless you're John Martin, then it's just like, hey, whatever happens, happens. So what kind of faith do we need, then, when it comes to Christianity? Well, first and foremost, we need to know that the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. That's Hebrews 11.6. So we know we have to have some faith, but what is it? Because it's not a hobby that we entertain on a Sunday morning for a season and then go back about our lives. What kind of faith do we see in the story this morning that we need to understand and replicate? Four things I want to highlight for you. And these are not unique to me. Four things. Four words. Asking, persisting, walking, sharing. Asking, persisting, walking, sharing. Like, what? What are you talking about? I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're talking about right now. An asking faith. We need to have an asking faith. As I mentioned sort of in the overview, here's this important man. He's traveled 25 miles. When he heard that Jesus was near, he begs Jesus to come and heal his son. This, this guy, this important dude, this royal official, had some prominence, yet he humbles himself before the Lord. He begs this carpenter. He didn't care in that moment what people might think of him or say behind his back because faith is bold. And it asks Jesus to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Faith requires that we come before the throne of grace and then we ask with confidence. We've got to believe that God can actually do what we're asking him. <laughs> but we do so as we're in relationship, in community, in connection with Jesus. Later in John 15, 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Remember, true faith is always found in relationship with Jesus. We're abiding in him. We're trusting in him as we're asking. But we got to ask. Come boldly. So we have an asking faith. And we have a persistent faith. In verse 48, we saw Jesus' response. And yet this man's faith doesn't seem to be shaken in that moment, or at least in light of Jesus' answer. He doesn't walk away frustrated, get discouraged or angry, which shows he's not there in a casual manner. Think about it. This guy's falling to his feet. He's like, Jesus, heal my, heal my son. And Jesus is like, hey, you're never going to believe if all you want to see is signs and wonders. Man, what's that about, Jesus? He was serious in his asking believing that Jesus could, in fact, heal his son. You see, we must be earnest, real, in our asking and our persistent faith. we got to cling to Jesus like a man or woman clings to a lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, like 
there's life on this raft, and apart from this life, there is nothing. Apart from this raft, there is nothing. That's what we're believing for. That's the kind of faith that Jesus responds to. Yet so many people only want stuff from Jesus. They just want to see the cool signs and wonders. They're not really interested in a relationship with him. See, a persistent faith does not give up when things look bleak or circumstances around you are, are causing you to question what's happening, no matter how things look around you. And verse 50 tells us, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. A persistent faith that does not give up because our hope is in Christ, the one that can accomplish what we're bringing to him. So we have an asking faith, we have a persistent faith, and then we see a walking faith. What's a walking faith? Well, this official, he came with his mind made up of how things would be resolved. What did he lay out as the way in which this was going to play out for Jesus? What did he what did he have in mind that was going to resolve the situation? That, that Jesus would heal his son? How? Just come down to my house. Come down to Capernaum. Pray over my son and, and he'll be healed. That's what he had in mind. You know, sometimes we come to Jesus asking with our mind already made up of what it's going to look like. How many of you can admit to that practice? It's dangerous for a number of reasons. Not the least of which, when things begin to unfold in ways that don't line up with your vision of how it should be, you begin to question and maybe even lose faith. Your faith can waver in that moment. That could have happened here. Jesus simply says, go home, your son will live. Really? Jesus, five words? That's, that's all you've got for me? I've got this big plan, my son, I mean, come on! You know, Jesus, it'd be a lot better if you just kind of came with me. You know, that way I could see and watch you in action. That's me sort of making an estimation of this man's inner monologue. Right? Can I at least get maybe like a receipt or, or some sort of guarantee? I mean, sometimes we need to see to believe, don't we? But something significant is happening here, church. Jesus is offering a chance for this man to transition from walking by sight, desiring to see the miracle with his own eyes, to listening to the miraculous word of Jesus and basing his faith on that. Because after all, we're called to walk by what? Not by... Come on. That's exactly what we saw in the Samaritan's case. Remember I told you it was going to tie in perfectly? They took Jesus out of his word, not by what they saw with their own eyes. That reminds me of Numbers 23, 19. You may not be familiar with that verse, but the idea you might be familiar with. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it. I mean, that's it, right? Our faith is a walking on kind of faith, a a carry on kind of faith. When we are believing in Jesus for something, we ask in faith. We persist in faith and in our pursuit of Jesus, regardless of the circumstances, and then we walk it out. We put one foot in front of the other in faith. 
Now, how about the walk home for this guy, right? Our friend here, 25 miles back. You, you hear a couple words uttered by Jesus and then turns around and begins to walk back. Not frustrated, not disappointed or let down. We see no evidence of that response whatsoever. Church, we've got to walk out our faith. Okay, last one, a shared faith. We have a shared faith. Before I get to that, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, we, we're still doing the Q&A. So if you have questions along the way of something you hear, text the number in your digital bulletin, and Mike and I will come up here at the end. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of reach to uh, answer some of those questions. The number is in the digital bulletin. Sorry, I forgot to mention that, but um, love to answer your questions if you have any this morning. But let's look at that last point, a shared faith. So our friend is walking home, he's making the trek, and who comes to meet him along the way? His servants come out, and they share some news with him. And once he's sort of interacted with his servants, they confirmed what he already knew what would happen. He didn't keep things to himself, did he? He shared the object of his faith, Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us what was their response. They believed they put their faith in Jesus. My friends, we must share our faith with other people. At some point, true faith moves us to sharing Jesus with others. Now that comes in all forms, all styles. What works for me may not work for you. But there's a reason why Jesus says that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the what? The word of our testimony. What has Jesus done for you? How has Jesus changed your life? And how can he do the same thing for other people? True faith requires true understanding. Yes, of course. But that's why people need to know about who Jesus truly is. Not who they think he is. Not what society says he is. Not what books and movies have suggested. Who is Jesus, and why can he be trusted as the object of their faith for eternal life? Our faith is going to be a shared faith. And I realize that's intimidating for all of us. We don't really know how to do that. But church, I'm convinced that we're in a season of transition as a church here at Village of Oceanside to being moved to action to share our faith with others. And I know many of you are already doing that. But true faith at some point compels us to share. You think about Acts, Peter, the other apostles when they're standing before the council. And they said, hey, don't talk about this Jesus anymore. Their response? How can we not share what Jesus is about and what he said? I, I can't stop myself from doing that. I want to close with a new term for, for us. And that's uh, your word reflex. Your word reflex. Now some of you have been around long enough to hear us talk about a prayer reflex. Prayer reflex is the way in which you respond to a situation with prayer. Right? Sometimes a situation happens and boom, you're on your knees, you're praying. That's a great prayer reflex. Other times, we try all kinds of stuff. Right? Let me try this. Oh, let me do this. Oh, God, I got this. Just 
sit over here for a minute. I'm going to go and take care of this thing. And then when we realize none of that stuff is going to pan out for us, then we go to prayer. That would be a bad prayer reflex. <laughs> what usually works better? The quick prayer reflex or the, the not so quick? Right. So the word reflex then is your response to God's word. How is it moving you to action? How is God's word moving you to obedience? Because at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. The Bible is here to compel us to action. What does James tell us about the word in, in terms of our responsibility? To be what? Doers of the word and not and not hearers only. It's not going to do you any good to sit around and listen to me preach or Mike preach or Mark or, oh, that was cool. And you just go on about your life. It will do you very little good in terms of kingdom growth and expansion and being involved in God's plan for filling the earth with his glory. It may make you We've been using this other term recently, the I will statement, and I think that's important. It's helping us direct us, but I just kind of want to, in an attempt to unify some of this language that we're using, I thought I'd offer word reflex and prayer reflex. So as you hear people talking about, hey, how's your prayer reflex? They know what you're talking about. How's your word reflex? When you read it, you're like, oh man, I got to do this. I had a friend of mine one time that said, you read the word, you ask, what do I need to know, stop, do, or change? I just read a passage. What do I need to know? Stop, do, or change? You ask God that question, he's going to direct you, and then you what? You do it. It It sounds so simple, but so many Christians don't. By the way, these are trained responses. It takes time to develop these habits. So give yourself a little bit of space a little bit of grace as you're beginning to grow in these areas. But for everyone here in the sound of my voice, ignorance is no longer an excuse. <laughs> right? We know what we're called to do. God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So with that, I'd encourage you not to leave here today without considering how you're going to respond to God's word. What is he calling you to do in terms of faith? What is this story about this royal official and his response to God that is compelling you to action? That's my prayer for us this morning. I'm going to pause in prayer right now, and then we'll continue in our worship gathering. Lord, I, I just... I'm so grateful for the way you you give us all that we need to be the people of God you're calling us to be. You don't just leave us to our own devices, God. You don't just leave us where we are. You have a desire for us to grow, to mature, to respond to the word, to be quick, to move to prayer, and exercise of faith that is rooted and grounded in you, in your finished work on the cross, in the fact that you gave your life for us, that we might be reconciled back to the Father, the fact that we are forgiven in Christ. That establishes the relationship, but Lord, 
We want to continue to walk in that relationship with you. And we need your help. And Lord, we know we do it in community as well. I'm grateful for this gathering of believers. Lord, let us help to walk that out together in faith. Holding each other accountable. Rejoicing when others rejoice. Mourning when others mourn. Lord God, walking in unity together. Compel us to action this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name.